Good morning, church. We love that hymn, don't we? The Lord gave us that hymn in the midst of our trials the last couple of years, and, and uh, it is a very special hymn for us. And you notice we print everything in the bulletin for morning and evening, so you can take it home with you and continue to learn these words and use it as a guide to your worship through the week. Bring it back with you in the evening. You just turn the page, continue on. And you can take those words with you, especially. It's, we still need them. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, another passage we need. As we have found that the book of Revelation speaks to us, as it has spoken to every generation of the church, written to a group of Christians in Rome who are suffering persecution, their world is melting down around them, and nothing is the same, nothing is settled, and Christ gives them this word. We're in a time of rapid change. Uh, It's changing more quickly than in terms of social mores than we have seen it change in many centuries. We're tempted to think that it's unprecedented, that we're in a time like no other. We're tempted to think that God doesn't even know what's going on. We are in a time when we need something secure. Nobody really likes change. Brain scientists tell us that change unsettles it. It's, it, it triggers uh, flight or fight responses, and, and we can't settle again until something becomes familiar, until we have good, good uh, knowledge and insight for the future. We need to be settled. We need to know something is the same. And we're not going to find it in our news services or our in print or in the media. We're not going to find it in most podcasts. We're not going to find it in medications. We're not going to find it in distractions. We're only going to find it in one place, in one person who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and is the one revealed to us in our passage. Revelation chapter 14, the last book of the Bible, We're studying through it chapter by chapter. John writes this. This is what he saw. I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with his 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not been defiled, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. 
And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In the 16th century, a Jesuit missionary attempted to take the gospel to China. He attempted to teach Christianity to the Chinese in a particular village, and he did it by using pictures. He held up a picture of the world as it was being created and moved through the story of the Bible. He got to Jesus. He held up Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it was a very peaceful picture of of Mary holding the baby peacefully, securely in her arms. And then the pictures progressed as he grew. He taught in the temple, and then, the, and then the, his life on earth, the miracles he worked, and then the cross. And when they saw that this God, that this missionary was trying to commend to them that this God died, that He was crucified in shame under a curse, they were repulsed. They didn't want anything to do with this God. They didn't want anything to do with that religion. They wanted the peaceful view of the baby Jesus in the arms of the Virgin Mary. That's the God they wanted. They wanted a peaceful God. Maybe they wanted one even that looked like they could control. They didn't want a crushed God, a crushed Savior, a slain Lamb. And at least in that village, they didn't want to go forward. They, because they, they stopped at the cross, they didn't get to go forward and hear the see the picture of the resurrection and the ascension and Christ reigning from the right hand of God. They couldn't accept a slain lamb. It is not until we understand that Christ is slain for sin that we can understand the good news of the gospel because, not just because, and and, and certainly not because the gospel ends there. Of course, we know He was raised to life. He's ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But it is especially important to understand that this Christ was not slain by surprise. It wasn't that God wrung His hands and said, oh my, I thought they would all love my son and now they've nailed Him to a cross. Now what am I going to do? It didn't catch Him by surprise. We know from chapter 13, verse 8, we've already studied it, that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. There was never a time in God's mind and heart that He was not giving His Lamb for the sins of the world. For the entire time of God's existence, He has always been sacrificing His Lamb for the sins of the world. There's never been a time that God has not been self-serving, self-sacrificing in His love for us. When He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, it was preceded by, in His decrees anyway, with the decree to save us by the slain Lamb of God. 
When you get it firmly in your mind that God has loved you from all of eternity to the point that He has always been sacrificing His dear and beloved Son for you in His mind and heart, when you understand that, you will follow that Lamb wherever He goes. You'll follow Him as our text teaches and stand with Him wherever He stands. You will stand with Him in His righteousness for whatever occasion demands righteousness. You see, verse 1, I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. How may you be strengthened How may you gain that resolve to stand with and for Christ for righteousness in every situation, regardless of the cost? It will be remembering that if Christ is your Savior, and He is as close as asking Him to be your Savior, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If Christ is your Savior, your future is secured because your redemption has been accomplished. Your future is secured, you see, by this number. This is another strange, one of those strange numbers in the book of Revelation, 144,000. Well, we've already studied it in chapter 7. We've already learned that the number 12 is the the one he uses symbolically to, to convey completeness. And thousand is the number he uses to, to communicate expanse. So if those whom he has redeemed who are going to be in heaven forever are called 12 by 12, that means they are going to be, they are doubly complete. Jesus will not lose one of them. They're doubly complete. And multiply that by a thousand, there's a whole bunch of them. So many that no one will be able to count them at the great day, the revelation will tell us later. That's all you need to know. You need to know if you've taken Christ as your Savior, He has taken hold of you. You wouldn't take Him if He hadn't called you first. And He called you first because He foreordained before the foundation of the world that He was coming after you, and He grabbed you, He changed your heart, He enabled you to believe Him, and He secured a place for you. He secures a place for you in His kingdom. You're in this number. You may not be able to count everybody at the great day, but the heavenly, heavenly Father is checking them off as they come in. He knows the number. He knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. Your future is secured. Your reservation is secured. And it is secured because of what's happened to you in the past. Verse 3, you have been redeemed. The 144,000 are the ones who learned the song because they had been redeemed. Redeemed just means bought back, reclaimed. You belong to the Father because He created you. You wandered from Him. We rebelled against Him. But He sought you in Christ. He changed your heart. He gave you a new heart to follow Him. And now you are His. You have been redeemed. Because you have been redeemed, you are numbered and secured in the future. 
And you say, now, that's just a wonderful idea. I, I, I love that idea that's out there somewhere. And if only I could, if only I could believe it. If only it were more objective. But it is. God didn't just do that in this book. He didn't just do it in his mind. He doesn't just say, trust me, I did it out there in the netherworld somewhere. He did this work of redemption on the earth in a very specific spot. And it's named in this text. I looked, verse 1, and behold, on Mount Zion he stood. Mount Zion is the mountain of Jerusalem. It's still there. You can visit it as soon as the borders open up again. Mount Zion is still there. It's Jerusalem. And all of the most significant redemptive events in redemptive history occurred in that little, on that little mountain. It's as if God put his finger on that mountain and pointed to it again and again and again and again throughout the history of redemption to say, I'm going to do it right here. And I'm going to leave this mountain for you so that you will always be able to go back and say, that's where it happened. It's not just in this reading. It's not just in my mind. It's not just in my Sunday school class. It's happened right there. It started back with, with Abraham. Abraham, go up. I want you to take that only covenant son you had, the son Isaac. I want you to take him up there. He's the one I know through whom the Messiah is supposed to come, but I want you to trust me. Take him up there on Mount Zion. I want you to sacrifice him. Well, by faith, without a question, he went up there. He raised the knife to sacrifice him in obedience to God. God, the angel said, stop that. Don't do that. The Lord God has provided a ram. He's provided a lamb. Sacrifice that lamb instead of your son. The people of Israel stuck that away. A Messiah is coming. Salvation is coming, but that salvation is not going to come by my making more and more sacrifices and making the proper sacrifices so that he will reward me with righteousness. No, I don't know all the details, the Old Testament Jew would say. I don't know all the details, but I get this much. There's going to be a substitute for me. God's going to provide a lamb. And then a little while later, he points on that mountain and he raises up a shepherd of lambs named David. And he brings David up there and he expands his kingdom. He becomes King David, who is one who writes scripture. He's a prophet. He's also a king. He can even act as a priest. And the people of Israel stuck that, stick that away and they understand that this this Messiah who's coming, this Lamb of God, is going to be one who teaches everything that we need to know for salvation. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a priest. They knew that already. He was going to make a sacrifice that would be for this, uh, accrue to their salvation. And he's going to be a king. He's going to be able to make that happen in us. He's going to take that, that sacrifice and he's sovereignly going to be able to apply it. And he's going to, he's going to, he's going to make us a kingdom of priests to rule and reign. We're not going to be on the losing side. And then later, a thousand years later, on that same mountain, 
Jesus comes in Passover week. He's riding on the back of a donkey. He's uh, being, there are two two or three hundred thousand lambs being driven in that day to be sacrificed in Passover. And he's riding above them. He is the lamb above all the other lambs. He is the last lamb. He fights his way to the cross. He is sacrificed on the cross. He becomes that substitutionary lamb. And then the third day he was raised to life. He's a king. He ascended to be a king, to bring that salvation to all those for whom he died. And it all happened on that mountain. God graciously occurred, caused it to happen on that mountain so we can say, it's not just something in my mind, it happened in that place. And you can go to that place, you can see the general vicinity of where he died. You can see the general vicinity of not the actual tomb in which he was placed and he's not there. Nothing's left of him, not even a fingernail. Nothing is there. And you can, you can look over across the valley and see the place that he ascended and went back to heaven. And you may know that that same Christ, that human Christ, is at the right hand of the Father, and He is ruling and reigning until He has completed His work of redemption, and including raising you from the dead, securing your redemption with Him forever, infallibly. He will not lose a single one. Just like Lynn said in her message We may face the future without fear because our future is secured in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus' last lamb on Mount Zion. And he didn't stay on Mount Zion. He pulled the peak of Mount Zion up into heaven so that he reigns from Mount Zion over all reality even today. This Mount Zion figures this way in the book of Revelation describing the full reign of Christ over the entire cosmos. You may stand, whatever the situation is, whatever the the demand is, the choice between right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, you may lift your eyes up to heaven and in your mind's eye, you may trace the path from Mount Zion in Israel all the way up to heaven and you say, Christ is standing there ruling and reigning and I'm going to make sure, I'm going to make sure I line up just with him and stand in his righteousness no matter what the persecution is against me, no matter if I'm all alone, whoever leaves me, I am following him, I'm standing with him. Secondly, knowing that Christ, Christ slain from the foundation of the world has secured your place in heaven, enables you without fear to stand with him, you can also sing whatever he sings. You can sing his song, verses 2 and 3. I heard a voice from heaven. Like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song. They were singing before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. And no one could learn it except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now this new song is not new to us. We learned it in chapter 5, verse 9 through 14. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. 
similar song to the one that Brett read to us in our, our uh, uh, in the call to worship. Worthy are you to take the scroll open seals. Why? Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is not a new song to Jesus. Jesus has heard this song sung over him from all of eternity because it was sung to him by God. Worthy are you, my son. You were slain. We know that there was a song sung over him because uh, Jesus said in John 17, Lord, I came to show them the love you've had for me before creation. There's never been a time I have not known that you love me. You have loved me from all of eternity, and therefore it is my delight to do your will. Oh, my God, whatever you want me to do, that is what I will do. The Father reinforced that at his baptism. This is my beloved Son. Because Jesus knew he was loved, he eagerly and joyfully did the hardest things even coming to earth, living under the law, even suffering hell and separation from the Father on the cross because he knew he was loved. And it's not a new song to you. It should not be a new song to you if Christ is your Savior. This is a song that you've not only read about in the Bible, but this is a song you have experienced if Christ is your Savior. You, you sing worthy as the lamb who was slain because you know he was slain for you. You and I know that we were wicked, that we were desperate, that we still will never deserve his, his, uh, his blessing, that our best works are like filthy rags, and the only reason we can stand in the presence of God is because of his righteousness substituted for us because of his substitutionary sacrifice. The only way it is possible in verse 5 for us to be blameless is because his record is applied to ours. And so we sing that new song. It's been taught to us as soon as we embrace Christ and receive him. It's taught to us. We learn to sing that song. Now, you don't know that song if you still think you're a good person. If you still think that there are those bad people out there who need to be punished, or you are sitting here in, because you are or tuning in by whatever means, and you're, you're attending because you're a good person, you go to church. And boy, if only those bad people out there would come into church. Or if you watch the news and you say, those bad people, if they would just straighten up. If they could just be as good as I am. I know I'm not perfect, but boy, if you just grade on a curve, I'm better than most. If you have any of those notions, any of those delusions, you don't know this song. You can't look at somebody else and say, boy, if they would just, you know, straighten themselves up, become responsible, and do better like I'm doing. 
then the whole, the whole world would be a better place. Then you don't know the song. You can't sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because you're effectively saying, saying worthy is the lamb who was slain for those people. You know, if you're really bad, and I know what this looks like because I used to say this. I used to believe this. Not yesterday. It's been a few years ago. But uh, I used to believe. I used to believe, you know. You know, Christianity is uh, for people uh, to have the hope of eternal life. And then it's got a, it's got a, real, it's got a real serious um, uh, rehab clause called the cross for the really bad cases. Now, most of us don't need that, but you know, if you're really extreme, if you've really done bad things, then the cross of Christ is for you. What a wake-up call it was for me to look squarely into the gospel through the preaching of the word and understand I am that one who needs the cross. And without that cross, I cannot ever be saved. I can never stand in the presence of God and certainly never go to heaven. Would you understand how desperately wicked you are, desperately despondent you are without the righteousness of Christ? Then you can sing this new song and it overwhelms you with love. You know, Jesus said it's, a, you know, on a rare occasion, somebody will die for a good person, but nobody ever dies for a bad person. And Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. God proves his love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, his son died for us. When you doubt that God loves you, the Bible says, look at this fact. He gave his precious lamb, his only son. When that is squarely before you, it's never a question of whether you're ever going to be ashamed of him in this world. You cannot be ashamed of him if you know that he was slain for you. There's a meme that's been going around for at least since 2012, the Christian Science Monitor put it out there and became very famous. This image, maybe you've seen it. It's a picture of, of, a, of a large crowd of, of ship workers, shipyard workers. 1936. And, um, and they're all giving the Nazi salute. Heil Hitler, Sieg Heil. They're all with their right hand extended, keeping the law of the land, which was if you didn't salute when somebody else saluted, you would be put in prison. Everybody has his arm like this, except one man. The meme usually has a red circle around it, one man sitting like this. And usually the line under it is, is something like, when there's a choice between right and wrong, you want to be this man. That uh, picture was published first in the 1990s and um, in a German newspaper, and they just asked, does anybody know who this is? There are a couple of possibilities, but one that's, that's gained the most popularity is that it's August Landmesser. August Landmesser's child wrote to the newspaper and said, that's my father. He worked for Blom and Voss shipyard at that time. And uh, that is the christening of the Horst vessel. 
a, a, a training ship, a Navy training ship, and Hitler came to the christening of that ship. And when he appeared, everybody went, Sieg Heil, Heil Hitler, except my father. She went on to explain that her father had been a loyal member of the Nazi party in the, in the uh, early 30s. Not so much because of the, the philosophy, but because he wanted to get a better job. He just went along with the crowd, just joined the reigning political party. And he, he, was, he was so admired by his peers, he was moving up the ranks. They thought he was going to be a high-ranking Nazi official. But eventually, he was kicked out of the party. He had been by the time of that picture, and eventually he was put in a concentration camp, and eventually he was killed. What happened? It was that in 1934, he met, while being in the Nazi party, he met Irma Eckler, the love of his life. He fell passionately in love with her and started dating her, and as soon as he started dating her, the Nazis kicked him out of the party because she was a Jew. But he continued to date her, and he asked her to marry him. He went and got a marriage license, and they said, you must dissolve that engagement, and if you don't, we're going to, we're going to put you in prison. He refused. They wouldn't give him a marriage license, so they married before God. They bore one child with her, and then a second child shortly before she was put into a concentration camp, and he was put into a different concentration camp. She was murdered. He was later killed in warfare. So that picture was taken right in the middle of this while he was married in the eyes of God to Irma Eckler. And he was willing, he was unwilling to go along with the crowd, knowing that it would send him to prison knowing that it might separate him from his wife, knowing that it would surely kill him, but he was not going to go along with the crowd. He was going to be that one that we still admire. And how did he have the resolve to fold his arms and be different, to stand out from the crowd and not do what everybody else was doing, knowing that it would not advance him in his career? How did he have that resolve? It was love. Love for Irma. And how can we possibly go along with a crowd? How can we possibly be influenced by peer pressure or afraid of what's going to be taken away from us or afraid of what it's going to cost us or what we're going to lose? If we know that God the Father God the Son loved us from all of eternity to the point that He would be slain for us. Not only will you stand with Him, not only will you sing His song, you will sanctify what He sanctifies. That just means you will consider holy whatever He considers holy. And whatever He says is unholy, whatever is wrong, you will not do. Whatever He says to do, you will do. Verse 4 has it this way, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It's metaphorical. It describes sexual immorality. And then the other sin is lying. In their mouth was no lie. 
It doesn't mean that, that, the, that, that uh, true Christians are only distinguished by, by sexual purity and by truth-telling, but rather he pinpoints the two predominant sins of the culture. Just like when he met the rich young ruler, he said, there's one thing lacking. You're covetous. You love your money. He puts his finger on it here in this, in this church in, the, in Rome, just as he may be putting his finger on that in you, sexual immorality, maybe your temptation, maybe the sin that you are continuing to pursue even though you know Christ was slain for you, maybe keeping up lies continues to be your practice. He puts his finger on that. Whatever sin it is against any of the Ten Commandments or the principles of Scripture, he puts his finger on it this day and he says, how can you possibly continue in that knowing that Christ was slain for you? He most likely puts his finger on the sin that we all share together, preacher and people, the sin of greed. We're not unique in that. It seems that the church has always struggled with greed, covetousness sometimes called. There's a reason it's the 10th commandment, refers to the heart. It's because it speaks back through all the other commandments. It is the universal sin of us, which is in essence this, greed, covetousness is not just taking a lot of money and hoarding it and wanting more or possessions. Greed is the sin of ever thinking of yourself before someone else. Anytime you do something, make a decision that fails to think of someone else before yourself, that is what the Bible calls greed. So whether it is in giving, whether it is helping the poor, whether it is in ministry, whether it is in masking, whether it is in politics, whether it is in the way you take care of your, uh, serve your neighbor, whether it is the way you behave on the, on the uh, field of play, whatever it is, failing to think first of your neighbor is the sin of greed. Did anybody pass that test? And Bible often associates the sin of greed with sexual immorality and lying and adultery. So you know how it goes sometimes. We say, you know, I'm not a, what is it? I'm not a murderer. Or somebody says, I, I'm, an, I'm not a racist. Now I am a materialist, you know. I, I don't... I don't lie, but I, you know, I do like my things. It's not complimentary. I do occasionally think of myself before other people. It's not complimentary. The Bible says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, against all greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. These are the ones who will not be found in the kingdom of God, thieves, Greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or greedy, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. 
Maybe our greed comes out in that I don't want my life to change in any way. I like my life the way it is. I don't want my world to change, my country to change, my church to change. I don't want this to change because I like it the way it is. What if somebody else likes it this way? It doesn't matter. Only I matter. That's greed, idolatry. The only way to get over idolatry, the only way to get past greed is not for the preacher to make you feel guilty about it. It is for the preacher to point you to Jesus and say, do you see that one who considered being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking up the form of a servant and dying on the cross. If standing with Christ in his righteousness requires looking at your future guarantee, if singing that song requires remembering that he was slain for your sin in the past, that he's, he's reigning now, then moving forward in faithfulness Moving forward, doing battle with the besetting sins in your life, especially the sins of greed, that will be taken care of by remembering his past faithfulness, not just to you, but to every person in the church of Jesus Christ. That's some of the perspective we are losing as we become unraveled in our fear. We have become, we're terrified as a people. And the more terrified we get, the more angry we become. And people love to traffic in our fear and our anger. There's nothing that raises money better than getting people afraid. There's nothing that raises money better than making people angry. But the people of God have no excuse for devolving into fear and devolving into anger. We are those who must, as our choirs told us, live in joy. And we can only do it as we remember that our future is guaranteed. Christ is reigning now. And He has always been faithful to us. I'll just give you a little object lesson by a book, a very special book in my library. You know, there are lots of books being written now that are selling very well because they confirm whatever bias you have. And uh, a lot of those books are being marketed to us, especially as evangelicals now, which are saying, you know what we're, what we're experiencing right now? And name it, whatever concerns you. What we're experiencing now, this whole thing on justice or the whole thing on race or the whole thing on on policing or the whole thing on whatever, whatever, whatever it is, on whatever side, there's a book there that will confirm your bias and whip you up into fear and frenzy, never, never a way forward. And a lot of them saying, there's never been anything like this before. This is the worst time ever in the church's history. Really? Have you read anything from the church in China? China Partnership blog? might look that up. Or how about this one? Three times as thick as any of those others. St. Augustine's City of God written in the uh, the, the early 400s, 420, 430. On his deathbed, 
He was writing this book, The City of God. He was in a so-called Christian nation called Rome under Constantine. And uh, the Visigoths or Vandals, those blasted Germans were coming after the Christian, like Samuel Metzger, just a poke at the German. <laughs> they were coming they, and they had taken down Rome. It was going to ruin everything, lowering the standards in every way. And the people, the, 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 the Christian people were frantic to the point of saying, you know, we've made a big mistake in, in following Christianity. We should have stayed with the old politically correct uh, religion and the Roman pantheon. That's the whole reason we're falling now. And they're scrambling, trying to recover their political power. And Augustine, from his deathbed, writes this book saying, in effect, Christ has always been the winner. Christ has always ruled and reigned. And there's only, there's not a, there's not a Christian nation and a non-Christian nation. There's a city of God and there's a city of man. And the citizens of the city of God are those who forego earthly pleasure to dedicate themselves to the eternal truths of God. And the citizens of the city of man are these, listen, people who have immersed themselves in the cares and pleasures of this present and passing world. And from his deathbed, he said, let them run us over as a nation, but no one will ever bring down the kingdom of God. That'll be the way to stand, the way to sing, the way to sanctify yourself. You remember that God is the same yesterday and past, today and forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, remind us that you are the prophet who teaches us this word about what we need today for our salvation. You are the priest, the one who has made the once for all sufficient sacrifice out of love for us. And you are the king who has never failed your people despite persecution, despite death, you continue to move the kingdom forward. So may we live as courageous, confident, joyful people, commending the gospel to others. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said.